Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, please visit our website at www.trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, church. Uh, We watched start to finish last Sunday with you online with great joy as you worshiped together and called uh, Dr. Matt Homeyer to be your pastor. And it was a delightful experience, even mediated through the internet. So we are happy for you and happy for the Homeyer family and look forward to uh, that transition. And I know Matt's been a friend of mine for a long time, and I know you're in good hands. And I am happy for all of you. It's a good, good thing. Uh, This is the first Sunday of Advent, and it is a a time of waiting, as we've heard, but it's also a time where we live with expectancy, that kind of waiting, not just stuck and wondering what's going to happen next. It's a hopeful kind of waiting that we live in, and hope is not an an easy commodity to come by in a world like ours. It would not be difficult to paint a picture of our world as one that is filled with struggling and with sorrow and with suffering and with very little evident hope. We have nothing in this world that we can clearly place our hope in. If I were to try to paint that picture, it would be a picture of a a world that lives with the scourge of war. War is not an occasional thing that happens in our world. It is a constant thing that happens in our world. I think we like to think of ourselves as people of peace, but of the 246 years there's been a United States of America, all but 49 years have been times when we have been at war. There, you go back to the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Spanish-American, the Mexican War, the Civil War, the Spanish-American War. All of those were small compared to what happens next. World War One, and the world sees 62 million people killed, most of those civilians. World War Two, uh, 60. Excuse me, I got those backwards. World War One. Uh, more than a third of the 15 million people killed were civilians. World War II, 62 million people died in the war, and more than half of those were civilians. In Korea, two and a half million people died, mostly civilians. In Vietnam, 10 million people, mostly civilians. Followed by the first Persian Gulf War and the Afghanistan War and the second Gulf War, Uh, we have just lost over 1.2 million Americans in war, much less the rest of the world. And right now, the news, if you turn it on, is going to be what's happening in, in Ukraine. This is a world at war. It has always been so. It remains so. And we've made no big jumps of uh, success in trying to end that, no matter what we call it. In our culture, we spend eight times more on our military budget than the next largest spender in the world, and more than the others combined. We prepare for war constantly. Ironically, we call it preparing for peace, but there is no peace. There has not been any peace. 
we would paint a picture of a world that is racked by disease in so many ways, and you could name all of the cancers and all of that, but we've become most familiar with COVID just in the last few years. Almost 7 million people worldwide have died of COVID in, since 2020. 12 million people have died of AIDS since 1980. There are scourges of disease in our world, all kinds, and the world is wracked by that, and we have not turned the tide on that despite all of our medical advance. It would be a world that is marked by its uh, the, the big dis disparities in finances between the rich and the poor, and it is a growing division between rich and poor in our world. It would be a world marked by titanic natural disasters. It's just every day. It's either earthquakes or floods or volcanoes or tsunamis or landslides or hurricanes or tornadoes. Constantly this world is disrupted as whole states are wiped out in a single storm. We can see that happening all around us. That's the world that we live in. It would be a world of unthinkable moral decay. We look around at the crime and the drugs and the, the dissolution of family life, and as I said, the distinction between the poverty and wealth and the destruction of our environment, all of those things are going on all of the time. And so there's not a lot of places to look around and go, that's hopeful, is there? Not as long as it's in human hands. We apparently don't have the capacity to remedy those issues as human beings. If we did, we would have remedied them a long time ago. We can't stop fighting and killing each other. We cannot prevent all the diseases. We're unwilling to, uh, to resolve the plight of the poor and solve the problems of poverty. We're, of course, incapable of stopping natural disasters. We're willing to tolerate the corrosive effects of drugs and crime on our culture. We prefer our consumptive lifestyles to anything that would resemble uh, the uh, care for the future of the planet. The world, left in human hands, has very little basis for hope. And that's where Jesus comes in. I want to commend every effort that any human beings make to remedy any of those issues and to stave them off to whatever degree possible. That's all well and good. But the problem of our solving them is not because we're incompetent or weak. It's because we are incredibly, hopelessly selfish. And if there's any hope outside of ourselves, it is outside of ourselves. That's the message of the gospel that the hope that remains for the world is outside of human hands and outside of human control. God has plans for this world that transcend all our futile efforts and all our frustration and all of our hopelessness. God has plans. When I was in seminary 100 years ago, I had a theology class with a professor named William Hendricks. And the very first day of class, he said there are 10 basic questions that we ask in theology. He listed them. Of course, we had to memorize them. But the 10th question was, how will it all end? And the answer that he gave to us, he had a one-sentence answer to each one of those 10 questions. The answer to question number 10, how will it all end, was it will end with him with whom it began that the future is entirely in the hands of God and that God has plans for this world that transcend all of our futile efforts. This is what the kingdom of God is about. God has intentions of setting the world to rights, and he's promised that he would do that. How does he plan to do that? Well, I would point you to 
two chapters in the New Testament. We won't read all of those chapters, but Matthew chapter 24 and 25 focus attention on that future God has for his world. Unfortunately, Matthew chapter 24, if you have a red letter Bible, is all in red ink because it's Jesus' words. Matthew 24 has been hijacked by people who want to figure out the exact calendar of how the world's going to end and when it's going to end and what's going to happen in what sequence and all of that sort of stuff. And that's, I, I just su suggest that this morning we just listen to Jesus and listen to what he has to say and let him speak for himself on this matter as much as possible. The reason he's addressing the question at all is it's his last week in Jerusalem before his crucifixion. On uh, Monday and Tuesday, he's gone to the city with his disciples and uh, conflict and controversy with his opponents every day. And it's gotten pretty intense. And on Tuesday afternoon, having just had one debate after another with people who really did want to kill him, they're walking out of Jerusalem and the disciples, I guess, to uh, just make some conversation and try to change the subject, look around at the beauty of Herod's temple that is there in the city of Jerusalem. And they point, one of them points to it and says, Master, look at this beautiful building and these beautiful stones. Let's have a discussion about architecture and aesthetics for a while instead of all this intense, scary debate. And Jesus looks over at it and he says, you see all of those buildings? I tell you, not one stone is going to be left on top of another. He didn't calm them down very much at all. This is Matthew 24, 1 and 2. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to the buildings. You see all these things, he asked. I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now that raised a question in the disciples' mind. If the whole temple is going to be destroyed, if the city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed again, like it had been in 586... That must mean the world's about to come to an end. Because how could, how could God's plans be fulfilled with Jerusalem destroyed? The world must be about to end. And so they raised their question to him. They thought of it as one question, but Jesus will address it as two questions. Matthew 24, 3. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. They walked through the Kidron Valley up the Mount of Olives and looking back over that, this, the holy city. The disciples came to him privately, and they said, Tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? For them, this is one question. When is this all going to take place? How, how will we know you're coming back? What will be the sign that this is all true? And Jesus then begins to address their questions. But what they raised as one question, Jesus addresses as two questions. What will, when will this happen? That is, when will Jerusalem be destroyed? And two, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? How, and Jesus sees those as two issues. What you find in Matthew chapter 24, he takes on some of those, uh, the first part about the destruction of Jerusalem in verses 3 through 28. And then he turns his attention to the second question, the sign of your coming, the end of the age, in verses 29 and following. And so he begins to talk to them about, well, how will we know Jerusalem's about to be destroyed? He tells them there are going to be false messiahs, and there are going to be wars, verses 4 and 5, he says. And he said, don't confuse those with the end. 
This is one of those places that kind of frustrates me when you hear people go, well, Jesus must be coming back soon because it says there'll be wars and rumors of wars, and that's what's happening. There have always been wars, and there always will be until he comes back. And Jesus said, don't confuse those with signs of the end. These are not the signs of the times. They are just the times. It's where we live with war and false messiahs. And Jesus said, you'll see all of those things, but don't confuse that with the end. He says in verse 6, such things must happen, but still the end is to come. And then he said there will be rebellions and there will be natural disasters and there will be pestilence, disease. And he says in verse 8, all these are the beginning of the birth pangs. Don't confuse the craziness, the pain, the suffering, the struggle of our world with signs that the end is about to come. Those things go on. There will be something clearer than that before Jerusalem is destroyed. He tells in verses 9 through 13 that before Jerusalem is destroyed, his <clears throat> followers will be persecuted. They will, some of them, be put to death. There will be false prophets arise. There will be an increase in wickedness. And the gospel will be preached to the Gentiles, to the nations, before Jerusalem is destroyed. And then he gives the one clear indication that these disciples he's speaking to can know that Jerusalem is about to fall. He says in verse uh, 15, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Well, that's real helpful, isn't it? Just let the reader understand. <clears throat> in Daniel 9.27, Daniel foresaw a time when Gentile armies would come against Jerusalem, and they did in about 167 B.C. And the the Greek armies came against Jerusalem. They uh, ravished the temple. They took, uh, they took a pig and sacrificed it on the altar. They, an abomination that desolated the temple. It was the abomination that causes desolation. It happened in 167 B.C. And Jesus says, when you see that happening again, when you see the Gentiles about to storm this place, don't expect that God is going to deliver Jerusalem. It is about to fall. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, Luke writes about that same speech of Jesus, but for the sake of his Gentile writer, readers who may not have known about the abomination of desolation, he just explains it for them. He says in Luke 21, 20, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. The tribulation of the days of Jerusalem's destruction are described in verses 16 through 28. They are not the great tribulation at the end of times. It is the horror of that time when Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans. And they finally did it. So the disciples said, when is this all going to happen? And what will be the signs of your coming in the age? And Jesus said, you're going to see a lot of stuff that looks really bad in the world before Jerusalem falls. But the thing that's going to tip you off and know that Jerusalem is about to go is when it's surrounded by Gentile armies, which happened in AD 70. And that Jerusalem was destroyed and not a stone was left on another. And the Jewish people were robbed of their temple, their city, their capital, and their hope. Now, Jesus turns his attention to the second part of their question. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And 
he says, they're going to look like they're very close together for a while. They, they thought, thought of it as one question. But there is the imminence of the destruction of Jerusalem, and there is the hope of the second coming. And that's, they're not the same events. And so Jesus looks off into the future, and he says in verse 29 through 30, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Quoting from the Old Testament. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He talks about these two events and as if they were very close together in time. But he himself said he didn't know when the second one is going to take place. And so it's... it's it's like looking at two mountain peaks when you're at a great distance. If you're driving into the Rockies for a while, you might see a mountain range, and two mountains may look like they're just right up next to each other. But the closer you get to the first one, the more evident it is that the second one remains at some distance. And it's sort of like that. The imminent event is the destruction of Jerusalem. But the closer we get to that, the, the church began to realize that Jesus' coming might be yet farther into the future. It's just as certain as the first. It's just not close in time. How far from the first to the second? You can't tell that you get closer to the first. Jesus did not intend us to use his teachings in this chapter or anywhere else in the Bible as a timetable or as a calendar, but to teach us to hear his words and use them to encourage us to live an upright life of hope in this world. There are three ideas, big ideas, that converge in every passage of Scripture in the New Testament that deals with the second coming. All three of these are present in Paul's teaching, they're present in Jesus' teaching, they're present in the book of Revelation. The first is the certainty of Christ's return. This is part of God's purpose and program from the beginning, to redeem this world, to set it to rights, to bring it back uh, into a new heaven and a new earth. That's a certainty. He's, he doesn't waver on that promise. Again and again, every book of the New Testament, I think except one, mentions the hope of the second coming of Jesus. That is a certainty, a promise given by God in Scripture. Second big idea that's present in all of those passages that deal with the second coming is the uncertainty of the time. We do not know when that is going to take place, how far out in the future that is, how far that second mountain peak is, we don't know. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 36, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. He said, I don't know. You don't know. Angels don't know. Nobody knows. And when someone gives you a date or puts it on a billboard on the freeway, they don't know either. You know how many people have predicted the date of the second coming? I don't know the exact number. It's been a lot. You know how many have been right? I do know that answer. Jesus said this is not for a timetable. This is about hope. Matthew 24, 44, or 42, he says, Therefore keep watch because you do not know what day the Lord will come. He says in verse 44, So you must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour. You do not expect him. Again, how much clearer could he be? There are no signs that tell us it's getting closer. 
Those signs were given for the destruction of Jerusalem. There is no indicator that tells us it might be tomorrow or the next day. It just might be tomorrow or the next day. We don't know when he's coming back. That's the uncertainty of the times. The when question can be answered in two ways, and one of them is appropriate and the other is not. Well, if you try to answer it, in the Greek word chronos can be translated time. You answer in a chronos way, that's with a calendar and a clock. And Jesus said, nobody knows the day or the hour. Put away your calendars, put away your timelines, put away your watches. Those aren't going to be helpful in answering the when question. The other Greek word for time is kairos, and it means a season, an appropriate time. And uh, it might be asked like the difference between when does the ballgame start? That's a chronos question. And answering the question a young couple might have, when should we start a family? Well, there's not a day and a time answer to that question. It's when are circumstances such that that would be a good idea? That's kairos kind of time. And we live in the kairos of Christ's second coming. He could have come any time in the past. He could come any day in the future, however many hours ahead or thousands of years ahead. It is in God's hands. But we live in that time of uncertainty where we don't know when he's coming back. And the third big idea, the, uh, the certainty of his coming, the uncertainty of the time, and nearly every one of these passages has a therefore. Because it is certain that he is returning, because it is uncertain when he's going to return, therefore, how ought we to live in between the times, between his first advent and his second advent? How should we live? The New Testament offers some clear suggestions about how the people of God are to live in these days. Despite the darkness of our world and its struggles and its suffering and its pain, we're to live hopefully. We are to live with hope. Not optimism, hope, this confidence that God who began it all is going to bring it to its appropriate end. This confidence that God, in the midst of all of the darkness and the suffering of our world, is the God who says, I'm coming back. I have plans for this universe. I'm going to redeem it all for my glory. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. We hold on to that promise and we live, we live in hope. There's a way to live in hope. Uh, and that is to bring as much of that future that God desires for the world already into the present. Read Revelation chapter 21, and it says in there that the time is coming when the new heavens and the new earth are established, that there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more dying, no more sickness, no more disease. It's a perfectly appropriate thing for us to do who are Christians and followers of Jesus to say, if that's the future God has for the world, let's begin to live in it now. Let's eliminate as much of that suffering and pain and sorrow as we possibly can. If God intends for the new earth and the new heaven to be pure, what do we do presently to take care of the one we have? It's a way of living in hope, reaching into the future, letting the future reach into the present and affect the way we live right now. We know how God wants things to be. We can even imagine that. So we begin to live it because we are God's people. We live hopefully. We live righteously. We make our decisions based upon what God says the future is going to be. We follow Jesus Christ, hoping to be found in him when he returns fully and righteous and mature. And we live missionally. We carry out the assignment we've been given until he returns. Jesus said, I'll be with you until the end of the age. 
And we continue to carry that out, waiting for him to return. C.S. Lewis, who, by the way, we celebrated this past week or maybe remembered this past week on November 22nd, might have recalled the assassination of John Kennedy. You know that C.S. Lewis died that very same day, November 22nd, 1963. And Lewis thought about the future and this hope that we have and God's plans for it. Uh, there was an essay he wrote called The World's Last Night. Here's a paragraph from that. He says, for what comes is judgment. Happy are those whom it finds laboring in their vocations, whether they are merely going out to feed the pigs or laying good plans to deliver humanity a hundred years hence from some great evil. The curtain has indeed now fallen. The pigs will never in fact be fed. The great campaign against white slavery or governmental tyranny will never, in effect, proceed to victory. No matter where, no matter, you were at your post when the inspection came. That's how we live missionally. We're at our post waiting for him to return. We may find ourselves in our generation, or maybe a thousand generations hence, interrupted suddenly in our work at our post by the return of Christ in glory. But it doesn't matter we were at our post. That's how we live, hopefully, expectantly, righteously, missionally, in between the times. Um, when I teach a, a class for a seminary, the very first day I distribute a, a syllabus. It's got all kinds of information in it. But it also has a prediction that there is a day of reckoning coming. There is a day of judgment ahead. It's called a final exam. And it will mean an end to the work for the students, but it will also mean the beginning of the holidays, the beginning of freedom. And it will be that way for our lives and our world. The day will come when the present decaying, warring, hate-filled, destructive world that we live in will be called to an end. It will happen. Jesus will come to set things at right. And the world as we know it will be brought to nothing. And Jesus will establish the new heaven and new earth. That's, that's his promise to us. To quote C.S. Lewis again, this time from The Last Battle, he says this, The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful, I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all stories, and we can most truly say they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning to read chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the last. That's the hope that we have to live for. During the season of Advent, we anticipate the celebration of Christ's first coming into the world, which was in itself a promise that he will be back 
and he will set the world at rights. He who was born king in Bethlehem, who announced the kingdom of God and invited us into it, promised that one day that kingdom, which has only dawned in this world, will be brought to full noonday light at his return. One day, all of the mess that human sin and selfishness has made of this world will be untangled and brought to an end by his cross and resurrection and return. This is the promise that we have. And to this, we live in hope. Let's pray together. Our Father, sometimes our imaginations are really strained to imagine that a world as, as really diseased and infected as ours is by so many kinds of human selfishness could ever be set at right, so there could be a new one. But Lord, you who created this entire universe can certainly redeem it. You who brought Christ back from the dead have the capacity to change it all. So we pray that you would help us these days and all these days to live with hope and confidence in you. Help us who are citizens of this new kingdom to be able to already live with the values that will be everywhere in that day. Teach us to love, teach us to serve, teach us to have compassion. Help us to demonstrate to this world the very love of God that is going to redeem the world. We ask these things in Christ's name. We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church, please visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.